This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, pretty much chilled out, just like the RBA. I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer here in Australia, and I'm joined by the straw man himself, the Managing Director and Founder of Strawman.com, Andrew Page. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Don't forget Chief Cook and Bottle Washer. I, I like that one. That's my favourite. Chief Cook and Bottle Washer as well. Exactly, mate. Uh, it's not all glamour in, in, in entrepreneur world, is it? Uh, you got to be a jack of all trades. And a uh, master of... Uh, <laughs> master of... Move on, move on. Exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> what Wayne used to say. Uh, mate, how is strawman.com going? Yeah, going well. Doing well. Um, I was just, man, so busy uh, over mm. the last month with reporting season. As we've often said, it's that drinking from a fire hose kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, and now the calm after the storm. So, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's going good. Lots of stuff to dig through and digest and, yeah, never a dull moment. Nice. Very good, sir. Uh, what is strawman.com again? Uh, something, something, I thought something you might know. miss it this week. Uh, <laughs> Not a chance. Uh, we are a non-public uh, <laughs> investment-related discussion group. <laughs> We're a private we investment it, club. That's what we should call it. That's a good idea. All right. Yeah. Uh, mate, let's get, on, let's get on to this week's podcast just for fun, just for fun. Why not? Mate, um, let's start, as I, as I mentioned, with the RBA. Um, uh, so interest rate decision out this week, shortest odds in the world that the RBA wouldn't move, and they didn't. So everyone goes, mm. tick, 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 tick that box. I wonder what odds you would have got on Betfair or something for a, for a change in rates. It would have been 1,000 to 1 maybe. I don't know, I don't know what, how... Almost worth taking, right? Just on, the, just, just on yeah. the off chance. Yeah. <laughs> I assume so. Um, do you know, by the way, the RBA, Australia's central bank, has now got the longest unbroken streak. Sorry, not, not streak. The longest number of amount of time since we actually increased rates in the world ever. Wow. How long central is banks that? were invented. How? It's 160 months, something ridiculous like that. Wow. It's a very, very, very long time. Wow. I, I don't even necessarily suggest it's wrong. It's just, it's a, it's a hell of a stat, right? And it's noteworthy. Again, saying, mm. well, they've now pushed out, you remember it was kind of late 2023, they said they thought rates might go up. Mm. They've now said 2024. Mm. So mm. effectively, now, they're not, they're not promising that. And this is where some journos and commentators and, and talking heads get this wrong. The RBA is not saying we won't increase rates till 2024. They're saying we have our preconditions on rates, which are inflation and wage growth, mm. and we don't expect that till 2024. So they're mm. not, for anyone who says, great, like, okay, I know I'm not going to pay more for three years. No, that's not how it works. Mm. Um, the RBA is not saying we're not going to. There is no circumstance under which they're just saying they don't see the conditions until then. But still, mate, two and a half or almost two and a half years away, um, <laughs> we're still in a very strange, strange old world, aren't we? Not to mention COVID. Yeah. The interesting thing I thought this week, though, was the change to the stimulus. Did you catch that? I did, yeah. It's unwinding something like, what, over $200 billion worth of stimulus. Yeah, so, and this, again, is surprising because if the commentators, the commentators, whoever they are, the general people who get quoted and asked for these things, no one expected rates to change, although there was some question of whether the RBA might do a little more on rates given where the economy is at. And, but the thought was, okay, well, obviously they'll maintain or increase the amount of stimulus, this bond buying program. We'll go into that in a second. Uh, but they're now saying basically they're going to take some stimulus away from the economy mm. in a time when <laughs> we're not exactly in clover. Unemployment's going up. This, this quarter is going to be a negative quarter of GDP growth. Um, maybe another one next quarter. Hopefully not because that would be a technical recession. Um, that's a whole different kettle of fish we probably won't get into. Um, but yeah, like the, the question was, do they keep the same or increase it? They've actually decided to reduce it, and, and either they're, they're wrong and we're all in trouble, or if you like to believe they might know what's going on, it's kind of a good sign, right? They're saying, well, okay, things are bad right now. We think the economy, the recovery is going to be swift. We think it's going to be big, and we don't think we need to keep adding stimulus. In fact, we can start to remove stimulus from the economy. It's a, I, I don't know, mate. I was um, pleasantly surprised, but really surprised in the current circumstances, choosing right now when 60% of the country is in lockdown to say let's announce a wine back of stimulus, big mm. call. Yeah, it's this is the kind of stuff that always does my head and I find myself often trying to... You, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes when it comes to RBA <laughs> stimulus and quantitative <laughs> yeah. easing and all and how and what does it yeah. all mean and yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. But so I mean, let, let's put it in context. It goes it's from $5 billion <laughs> in, what is it, monthly bond buying mm, back mm, to mm. $4 billion. So it's still a reasonable... Uh, yes, it's yeah, easy, but right. it's, it's still right. a reasonable <laughs> amount of stimulus there. <laughs> yes, and yeah. I guess at some point too, I mean, you, you have to, right? Otherwise, it just if it's just a, a standing <laughs> policy that we just do this all the time, it loses any effectiveness. In fact, it has mm, all, mm. all kinds of uh, unintended consequences. So you, I guess you do need to pull it back at some stage. But yeah. 
Um, let's walk it through, shall we? Let's mm, let's, mm. Uh, and you can you can sort of help me here as I as I um, stumble <laughs> all I, over this kind I, of stuff. I, so I was hoping you would help me, mate. So we'll see if we can do it together. We'll see if we can do it together. So. Yeah, with the RBA, this kind of stimulus, this quantitative mm. easing mm. is actually mm. the RBA um, creating money <laughs> and using <laughs> that money to buy bonds. Yes. From James uh, Bonds. No, no government bonds. That's right. Say again? I said James Bonds. There's a the no James, government bonds. Yeah, that's, that's right. Now, um, uh, so what does that do? So on, on their balance sheet, they, they mm-hmm. obviously get these bonds and then they pay yes. out this, this cash and it just yes. puts more liquidity into the system. There was a bank that's now got uh, a debt that it needs to service at some point mm-hmm. in the future, but it's also got a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, cash or the government has got a, a bunch of cash now that they can spend that, that will go off into the economy. So it literally yep. is creating new money, isn't it? It is to some degree, yeah. Um, the, the action though here is less about well, the side effect might be the increase in, in, in cash flow. The side effect here, or sorry, the main the main effect they're looking for is they're trying to keep interest rates down over the medium term. Mm. So let, let's let's unpack it a little bit. The RBA influences the well sets the what they call the overnight cash rate, right? Which mm-hmm. is basically banks give the RBA their money overnight. They have to. <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. give us give us your money. Put it now in, in our safe. We'll give it back to you in the morning. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they give the banks an interest rate on that. And that's, that is literally the official cash rate. That's how they do, that's how they influence interest rates because if they're only getting that amount of money, that's all the, you know, that's all the banks are getting for the money they give the RBA mm. and they have to give the RBA that money, then that reduces the, the you know, uh, influences the cost of money for borrowers. Mm-hmm. And again, that creates that competitive environment. Now, the, the banks obviously borrow money from overseas as well. And that gets a bit messy. Quite a but bit, that's actually. The RBA, Quite a bit, just, for, just to make that comment. Yeah, right, up to, up to 40% in some cases, yeah. maybe a little bit more. Um, just quick, quick, massive tangent for fun. Uh, remember back in the day, for those of us who have less hair than we used to, Aussie home loans and uh, Rams, way back in the day, the GFC, actually had struck trouble because they got all their money from overseas, yep. from the wholesale money market when they were borrowing for 30-day terms and the money market said, yeah, we'll have that. Yeah, so basically your entire loan book gets refreshed every 30 days. Imagine mm. that, right? Mm. So think, think about your mortgage. Every 30 days, your mortgage gets refreshed and then one day... You, you kind of say, okay, well, okay, I want, I want to, you know, I want to roll over the mortgage. And they say, no, 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 pay it all back now. Mm. Like, what do you mean pay it back now? No, no, pay it now. You have to pay it all back now. Mm. Uh, and that's, that was the problem. They made 30-year loans with 30-day funding. Mm. And if that funding dries up, you get in trouble really, really fast. That's what sent them to the wall. So yeah. to your point about overseas money, that, that's part of the challenge of banks making sure they have enough liquidity and they don't take too many risks. The, back to the RBA though, the medium, so that's the overnight rate. When banks and businesses are looking out two, three, four, five years and trying to work out how much money they should commit or can commit or what the cost of that money will be, that's set by, as you rightly point out, mate, the bond market. Mm. So the Australian government says, hey, we want to raise some money to pay for the government, the budget deficit, which is frankly a lot of money right now. Uh, how much will you guys pay uh, or what interest rate will you demand, sorry, for this? So this, this is before the RBA gets involved, right? The government says, we want to raise some more cash. Uh, there are people out there, super funds, pension funds, um, super conservative investors who say, I want some bonds in my portfolio. I want government money in my portfolio so that I feel really safe and secure and it kind of reduces volatility, all that good stuff. And so they say, look, yeah, I want to buy some government bonds. And the government basically auctions those bonds and the lowest price wins. So the, the, com- the, the people or the company or the funds prepared to accept the lowest return win the day. And that's kind of how it works. Mm. What the RBA is doing is getting involved in that process to basically push those bond yields down even further. Mm. So they're basically saying, right, well, let's go out three years. We're going to buy a whole lot of bonds. And when you buy the bonds, you push up the price. And think about a price earnings ratio or even interest rate. If you push up the price, you push down the yield. So if I if I got a hundred dollar bond with a one percent yield, but all of a yeah. sudden someone wants to buy that from me for 150 bucks, my yield falls to 0.67 percent. Mm. And so that's how they influence those medium-term interest rates. And that's why they're buying these bonds. Out, normally about three years is their kind of target rate because they're trying to keep the medium-term interest rate also low, not just the official cash rate on the overnight borrowings to give businesses and, and investors some degree of certainty, to give banks some degree of certainty, basically trying to give people, make sure people know they're not going to have to pay more anytime soon so they can invest, grow, when I say invest, I don't mean literally as investors, but businesses who invest in growth capital, they can do that with confidence. And that's kind of what they're trying to do with this extra bond buying. 
winding that back says basically, probably firstly, maybe we don't need to do it. And secondly, it's a really unconventional policy. They probably don't want to do it unless they have to. And so they're taking the opportunity because they think they can to start to pull back on that. So, okay, I've got you. I get it. Um, but but here, here are the other the things that I, I start to get a little bit uh, uh, tangled up in. Go for it. So there is a natural market out there outside of central yes. banks, just people yeah, who, who right. want to buy debt, right? And you, <laughs> yep, you can't yep. force someone to say, yes, you, I, I will, you, you have to take up a certain percent uh, yield on this, on this bond. So there's, there's this agent out there in the market mm-hmm. who's not mm-hmm. operating under normal sort of – there's other considerations. Yep. But but and as you say, there's an auction process, so they can ensure that they always have the lowest bid mm-hmm. and all that, and they're happy to do it. Mm-hmm. But yep. at some point, when when they decide that they don't want to or can't play anymore, it does revert back to the natural market mechanisms. And if yes, markets, correct. which might be thinking along different lines, think any different, that 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 situation could change very quickly in terms of interest rates. The other side of it is as well, the whole time that they're, I mean, they're, they're buying, they're not just tearing these things up, they're buying these bonds. <laughs> that's right. You know, the, the yeah, government that's right. exactly. uh, owes them yeah. money. Um, yes, so at yes, some point, right. and how does that all play forward? So every month, add on $5 mm-hmm. billion, $5 billion, $5 yes, billion. Right. Now, at, at, at a point, um, and, mm-hmm. okay, sorry, and then the third part of it, all of this extra cash is in the market. So, yeah. This is high school kind of economics again, where it's just like if we all lived right, in a right. tiny little village and there was only 1,000 gold nuggets around and mm-hmm. all of a sudden someone came in a ship and dropped another 1,000 gold nuggets, our whole economy would change in the sense right, that right, right. prices would, would adjust for that. There's the inflation kind of concern because there's just yep. the amount of things that we produce and make in, in the economy hasn't really changed, but the amount of money that's right. all sloshing around the system has changed. And normally right. that's going to have an effect. So there's, all, there's these sort of three big implications here. And and that's where I start to get a little a little <laughs> yes. bit lost. So the first one, one, I'll, I'll put it to you. So one, they take away <laughs> how how long can they do the stimulus and 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 uh, pervert the natural <laughs> market forces that might be at play? Do they just yeah, say we'll I, do it forever? We don't care. Well, well the honest answer is no one knows, right? So that's 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 to, to your point and maybe to your concern or, or maybe just general unease, that's exactly the point of the question. No one knows because mm. we've never done it before. Right. So we are literally heading into the unknown. So if you're a if you're a you know baked beans and shotgun kind of guy, you're looking around going, man, this could end really well, it could end really badly, or goodness knows, I bet I better, you know, um, resort to the cave or, or at least, you know, maybe, maybe I'm being I'm being facetious of course. But you know, you could decide or other people could decide to take a very different view and say, well, just in case this goes badly, mm. this could end in, in very large inflation or government debts blowing out or, frankly, government insolvencies at some level mm, mm. Um, or just a, a rebase of the, of the currency in general, which can be either inflationary or deflationary depending on how it happens. Mm. Yeah, that, that's absolutely a risk, Matt. So we don't, we don't know. No one knows is the answer. And that's why that's what's got some people worried, quite a few people worried, is just I don't know what happens next. We've had people um, in the US really well-respected, kind of, you know, relatively conservative, relatively kind of... Um, Ivy League kind of professor level economist saying, guys, I'm not comfortable here. Like, I don't know what happens next, but we are running headlong into the unknown without really understanding the consequences. So there is there is that very much in place, mm. mate. And, and as you say, will it do it forever? I don't think so. I think, I, well, if we, if we go back a step, I, I don't think we'd have zero rates for this long either. Mm. And, and where do you go next, right? So I, my, my biggest concern to not answer your question, but maybe to add my tangent is, Rates, when rates are moderate or neutral or high, they've got somewhere to go when things get tough. You know, rates going into the GFC were 7%. Mm. And so you get to drop them and you get to stimulate the economy going from 7% to 35 Okay, well, guess what? You've just put a whole lot of stimulus in the economy relative to where we were. Mm. You've underpinned some extra liquidity, some extra risk-taking. Um, people can do things they might not have otherwise done. That's all good. When you go from 35 to zero, you do the same. When you're at zero... Where do you go? Where do you go to bond buying? We're already bond buying. Then where do you go? Mm-hmm. And at some point, you kind of you wonder where the end point is. And I, I actually share your general disquiet. I would like to think we'd get rid of the bond buying as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think we'd start to pay back the government debt, at least to some degree, as quickly as possible. I'd like to see rates go back up to something higher than this as quickly as possible for all the reasons we've just discussed. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question? Is this is this possible? Um, mm-hmm. Can the RBA just forgive the? Can the government default on its? It's issued all these bonds. The RBA's bought them all. Can the can can it just sort of the RBA say, yeah, don't worry about paying us back? Can yeah, that effectively. Yeah, they they, they just write to. they write that off. Okay. Yeah, they could. They could. I mean, again, it has implications, right? So, mm. what does the world think of the Australian government in that in that circumstance? Yeah. Do they do they trust us anymore? 
Do businesses trust the RBA? Do, do investors trust the government? Th- those things become really real issues at some point. But yeah, mm. I mean, the, you know, it, it, we know different from the government for giving student debt, for example, in the US they're talking about, let's just forgive all the student debt. You could, yeah. you could simply do it tomorrow and say, okay, well, the government takes a loss because it's not going to get paid back anymore. I was not going to pay back anymore. It's just mm. that the RBA takes a loss. But effectively, the RBA is a government entity anyway and it gets rolled up into the national numbers. So, I mean, the RBA and the government aren't really separate entities for any uh, financial basis. If you were going to, if you're an accountant, mm. you consolidate the two together and say, mm. this is the total government surplus debt uh, assets liabilities. So th- some, of, some of these, I mean, this is actually a fairly uh, old discussion mm. point because for as long yeah, as, really since the GFC, yeah. there's been concerns sort of raised by this. Mm-hmm, and the one, mm-hmm. the one that was the, like the first concern raised was, was, was that of inflation because all of this extra money in the system. I right. don't know what it is for Australia, but I remember reading a stat recently that the money, the US mm-hmm. monetary mm-hmm. supply, the, the reserve currency of the world, um, <laughs> That's right. has increased by something like 30, 25, 30% in mm-hmm. the in the last couple of years. So we're, uh, just take all the, the US dollars that exist in the world, yeah. in the universe, and increase that by 30%. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah. it's very natural. And again, I'm not an economist. Let me, right? let me stress, yeah. if it's not obvious uh, anyway, but let me stress <laughs> it. Yeah, I'm not an economist, but, yeah. but, but a lot of people, and again, a lot of smart people say, well, surely, mm-hmm. surely that has inflation I- implications. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason method. it hasn't is <laughs> yeah, basically right. been, well, it hasn't found its way into, quote, unquote, the real economy. It's yeah. gone into asset prices. It's gone into property. Correct. It's gone into shares. It's gone into business. At least so, so it's not like there's more. there are more dollars out there, but we're not competing for ride-on lawnmowers and iPads and whatever mm, consumer mm, items mm. we want to buy. It's, it's all gone into the, to the financial system. Does, does that hit a point where it does start to trickle down into to things mm. where where prices in the economy do start to feel an impact from that. So, so let, me, let me also be clear, Matt. I don't, I don't know any more than you do. Where you, you're being very kind asking me questions as if I know the answers. Um, we're all, we're, no one does, and, and I'm not a trained economist. I, mm. Obviously, I've studied economics. I've, well, I, say I, trained, I yeah, did it at uni. Um, I have a close interest in it, as you do, but none of us know the answer. So we're all kind of spitballing to try yeah, and right, guess right, what, right. what it might be. To, to your point, a couple of things. So first thing is, yes, it's absolutely gone into the non-physical economy. So asset prices, as you say, primarily a huge component. Even mm. a lot of the GFC stimulus back in, back then yeah. that was supposed to go into the into the economy went to actually shore up banks' balance sheets, for example. Just simply gave the banks more assets against the liabilities they owed mm. and stopped a collapse of the financial system, which was kind of what it was supposed to do back then. Mm. Move forward now. Yeah, you're right. Lots of money being added to the economy. Very little of it seemingly coming into the economy. Now, the one thing I will just add here, and this is my biggest question about the broader structure of the overall economy. I don't want, I don't want to get doom and gloomy because I'm actually optimistic, but um, it, we don't know the counterfactual, which is a fancy way of saying we don't know what would have happened without this money. Mm-hmm. And so when we say we've added 30%, if that's the number, to, to the US dollar um, pool, surely that should have provoked, you know, prompted inflation. Maybe it has in, in the sense that maybe without it, we'd be in a deflationary environment of minus 5% right now. Mm. And maybe, you know, so we don't know what it would have been otherwise. And so like, like every bit of stimulus, if you say, well, you know, the RBA drop rates hasn't helped because we haven't grown at a million percent a year, possibly, yeah. But if we would have declined at 20% a year without it, to use just stupidly large um, examples, then it's done a really, really good job. And that's the hardest part with any of this analysis is trying to work out what might have happened otherwise had we not taken some of these decisions, had we not put some of these things in place. Because, you know, if the massive... So take COVID, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is you'll, you'll love this. You'll, it'll, it'll send you slightly ranty. Um, the, the, those, those certain people who say, we shouldn't be locked down, see, only 100 people have died, is, is looking at the fact that only 100 people died because we've been locked down. Mm. They will say, well, only 100 died, so the lockdown was a waste of time. Uh, all this lockdown for, for these 100 deaths. Now, not, you know, I, have a, I have a issue with just trying to put values on death anyway, but they would say, relatively small numbers, see, it was a waste of time. And then the reasonable person would reply, yes, but we don't know what would have happened if the lockdown hadn't been in place. And so that's kind of the story, right? It's saying, you know, what, what inflation will it create or mm. how much money has been added to the economy? Look, it's not, it's not creating inflation. It may simply be a case, frankly, that it'd be a whole lot worse without it. And this is, this is the counterfactual where the numbers are X percent better than they would be, mm. but it's not big because otherwise we'd be in trouble. Now, my, my question on that is, well, gee, if that is the case and we were going to be in trouble without it, we're now at emergency levels and we're kind of not, you know, we're not flying, we're not getting hyperinflation. Almost mm. that's almost the problem, right? Mm. Is if the economy was working, we should be getting hyperinflation right now. Right. It doesn't mean the stimulus is wrong. 
maybe it does come down the track, as you say. Maybe it's just, you know, it's not dead, it's just sleeping. Mm. Um, or maybe it's the case that without it, the economy would be in even worse trouble and that has some structural implications and questions around, well, how big is the house of cards here? <laughs> how dangerous is, are we, you know, how, how precarious are things if that's true? And I think that's what I don't know. And that's, if I was asking you questions, I'd be saying, guys, you think we need to have 0.1% interest rates? Now, we're in COVID, so that's harder. But take, take even go back to 20, early 2020, right? January 2020, pre-COVID. Rates were still 0.1% then. Um, well, 0.25, I think they were. Stimulus was not there, but close enough. And if that was, <laughs> you know, we, we weren't exactly in emergency territory. 11 years after the GFC, no COVID on the horizon at that point, And yet we still had rates at a quarter of a percent. Mm. My, my concern is if we're not back at neutral 11 years after, when, how do we ever get there? And, and has what has fundamentally changed that we're not back at three percent official cash rate by then, and inflation is not at two and a half percent. I think that's. I don't think economists have an answer. Mm. Uh, quick plug too, mate. Um, the Good Oil podcast that I've now started doing. I interviewed Stephen Kukulis, as our listeners will probably know, mm. um, and we had a really good chat about not so much about the the, the RBA impacts and stimulus impacts per se, but about interest rates in general, the economic circumstances in general. So, mm. um, if you if want to hear real economists talk rather than you and I trying to <laughs> trying to spitball answers, um, do, do, there you go. just a quick plug for the other podcast, The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. Check it out. Uh, episode one with Stephen Kukulis. Episode two has just dropped with Eliza Owen, who is a property head of property research at CoreLogic, the data and analytics firm. So uh, she's got a really great grasp on the industry. Unlike some, she's not a complete booster for the sake of boosting. Um, she calls it uh, calls a spade a, a bloody shovel, and she's really smart, really thoughtful. Her grasp of the details amazing. So mm. check that out too. Sorry, mate. Just quick, well, let's plug. let's move it back into our wheelhouse. Cool. Um, and and so we've just sort of said, look, there's these huge sort of us unprecedented things. No <laughs> yeah. one really knows how it's going to play out. Yeah. But one potential way it plays out is <laughs> yeah. is pretty badly. So mm-hmm. so okay, let's move it to our domain. Yep. What do you do about that? You're an investor. You've got money in the market. <clears throat> How do you? Well, I'll ask it in. I'll ask it two ways. One is if you were genuinely really, really, really worried about high, inflation. I'm just going to say hyperinflation. Just much more aggressive inflation and the, some of these effects that we've been talking about. What do you do differently with your portfolio? And the second part is, well, what what are your actual expectations and what are you actually doing? Mm. So. Um, I'm going to go back to one of your investment heroes, Howard Marks, mm-hmm. who talks about. Uh, we've used I've used this line before, and I apologise if you were going to use it because I'm going to use it instead because you asked me first. <laughs> is um, there are things that are, are both important and unknowable, and wasting any time thinking about them is a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. The the idea that's not a direct quote because I don't know the exact quote. But the idea basically is let's say it was really 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 important and vital, and if you could know it, you should, mm. but you can't know it. Then so don't waste your time. It's, you're only hitting your head against a brick wall, right? <laughs> you, know, you can't possibly know, so why would you bother? Mm. So there's that, mate. I'm not trying to know an absolute answer and I'm not trying to have a view on the absolute result. Um, what I am trying to do, I suppose, is look through any of that. And, and remember, like, it's, it, one of the, <laughs> the, only benefit of, one of the only benefits of being old is uh, we've been through a couple of cycles, you and I. Um, you know, I'm, not, I'm calling you old, but, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, spade a spade. You, might, you, you, you might still look young, mate. I, I've always looked about 80, so let's go with that. Um, one of the benefits of, of being through some cycles is you get a, a really clear sense. And even, even back further than that, right, if you've been a, a reasonable student of even recent economic history when I was going through uni, uh, it was a very long time ago, and we were learning about the stagflation of the 1980s and the oil boom of the late 1970s and the, and the oil cartels. And so, you, you know, we had, we had really high inflation. Late 70s, early 80s, really high inflation. And so you can look at that and go, okay, what matters? And at the end of the day, for me, for my investing, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts, for me, for my investing, I'm looking for um, businesses that have long-term uh, growth potential and have pricing power. Because if you can, if you can do both of those things, I'm, you know, one of the greatest examples, two great examples from the GFC, Apple sold a trillion iPhone, not literally, gazillion iPhones during the, during the GFC as if it didn't happen. Because mm. people did lots of other things, but they didn't. Avoid, they they still replaced their iPhones, right? Mm. Um, secondly, a little company. Remember, um, Flexi Group, now called Hum Group. Hum, the, yeah. The, the the original buy now pay later, if you believe them. Uh, but they, they were the ones who who financed a whole lot of the Flexi Rent kind of computers from Harvey Norman and the you know twenty four months, thirty six months interest free stuff mm. back before Afterpay turned up. We had a recession here in Australia. Retail sales fell. All that good stuff. Flexi Group kept growing like the clappers through that period. Mm. And, the, and why? Because they were actually small 
and they were taking market share at a million miles an hour. And so, yeah, they're, they're, they're organic business. The, the year-on-year stuff, maybe the, the I don't know, let's, let's say Harvey Norman at, uh, at New Farm. Uh, there isn't one, I don't think. Let's say the Harvey Norman at New Farm, it, it might have declined. And Flexi Group's business with that, with that one store might have declined when, during the GFC because fewer people bought computers. But Flexi Group was signing up more stores, more mm-hmm. chains, more consumers. And so it was growing in a secular way, even despite a cyclical downturn. So if you think about businesses like that that have that long-term growth potential, then that's a good place to start. Secondly, pricing power. If we have inflation, if costs go up, you want a business who can also put its prices up, right? Because if you're a business who can't charge more than a buck for a bottle of water, and a bad example, water doesn't go up in price, I don't imagine, but let's assume it does. Um, and the, the, the cost of water doubled, but you can't sell it for more than dollars because consumer won't, consumers won't pay that money or the competitors will keep their prices down as well. Then what happens? Your margins get squeezed and your business really sucks. If you're Coke, if the cost of sugar and water and black stuff, whatever they put in it, goes up, you can probably put your price up. In fact, there's a very, very good chance you can recoup most or all of that inflation in costs by putting your prices up. So that's the other thing is I'm thinking mm. about. Now, now, by the way, that's good business generally because if a business has pricing power, then that means even without inflation, people still love them and will keep buying from them. Yep. So you got to get it. It's kind of one of those heads I win, tails I don't lose. Mm. If, there, if there's inflation, I want pricing power. If there's not inflation... I still want pricing power because mm. you know, it's, it's they're going to be quality brands or locked-in businesses, that the moats that we talk about. A business with moats, generally speaking, is just a great business in any circumstances but comes to the fore even more if some of the, I won't say worst-case scenarios, but if we do get inflation, high inflation or even hyperinflation. Mm. Will I get hurt? Probably. Will I do better than the average? Yeah, I absolutely believe they will. So that's probably how I think about it. How about you? Great answer, mate. Well, you, you, I, I would say exactly the same thing. This is how I think about it because I do really grapple with some of these big macro kind of questions, but I, I always land back on the a good business is a good business in good times and in bad. <laughs> that's right. You know, and that's, that's kind of yeah. – it, it will impact things such as – valuations and multiples yeah. so I'm careful not I'm careful not to sort of base value on this idea that interest rates will always be zero I think you always need a bit <laughs> yeah. of a margin of safety there but yeah, yeah. you're a hundred you're a hundred percent right um, uh, the, the one the one thing I'd also add to is and this is, this is another thing that's always true is that companies with high leverage, you need to be aware, careful of, but particularly mm. if we have a, a high interest rate environment, well, that's going to mm. mean mm. a higher int- uh, high inflation environment. That's going to mean a high interest rate environment, which is mm. going to mean a higher cost of debt. And so you've got to watch that as well. The flip side, of course, and there's always a flip side with economics, is that more inflation <laughs> reduces the the real uh, amount of your yeah. debt in in yeah, real terms. That's true. Um, but yeah, I, I think those those businesses that are very highly leveraged don't have mm-hmm. pricing power. They're the ones that get wiped out. So you know, yeah, Nicholas correct. Taleb has this 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 term called anti fragile, which mm-hmm. I really love. It's these kinds of business. Well, he's not talking about specifically about businesses, but it, it it can apply to businesses that are just very robust. You can throw a lot of different things <laughs> at them. It will have an impact, yeah, yeah. but they kind of they, it, it doesn't it doesn't divert them from their course. There are others that are extremely fragile where one or two little things go wrong. A lot of them could be completely beyond the the control of uh, influence of management and it just wipes the whole thing out. Really you you, you talked yeah. before about Rams, right? And that, that, that was exactly, mm-hmm. exactly the case. An incredibly fragile business. It only took a little bit of a liquidity snap in the, right. in the market and that whole thing went down. So, right, right, yeah, right. I, I, think, I think we've had a very far-ranging discussion, but it just, it doesn't, this is the nice thing about it too. Doesn't it always just come back to the same kind of point? Because <laughs> even, in, even in this environment, you talked about the high, interest, high inflationary environments mm-hmm. and stuff that we've had before, but you also mm-hmm. very often talk about about this long-term chart from S&P and it, yeah. it sails through all of that. It's always a bumpy mm. ride. It's always very scary. And again, when you dig deeper, when you dig below that, we know another very interesting stat is when you, we, we always talk about the market and on average it does that. Well, the interesting mm. thing is it's something like, I forget the exact number, but it's only like 10% of companies that drive most of the returns Yeah, yeah. in that. You know, like most on a pure numbers game, statistically, most companies do not do well at all. The share market's an mm-hmm. awful play. It's just if you can if you can capture some of those really stellar performance, the gains can just be phenomenal. And if you mm-hmm. can't be confident enough to sort of stock pick them, you, you'll, you'll get them anyway in the index. But yeah, right. I guess it's just, it's just a point worth making that we can have very tough, difficult economic times and there can still be a lot of prosperity for smart investors. I mean, that's, I mean, that, frankly, that's been the last 18 months, right? I mean, right, right. you know, <laughs> the, the returns of the stock market over the last 
18 months despite, frankly, COVID recessions. Um, you know, it, you know, I, we've said before, people, the, one of the most regular questions I get is, how can the market be going so well while the economy is going so badly? And there are answers to that question. And we won't unpack them again because we've done it in the past episodes. But that, that exact point of, you know, don't be too, don't be too care, clever. You know, there's, just because a risk is possible doesn't mean it's going to happen. Mm. And even if it does happen, it, the outcomes can be very, very, very different. If you'd have said to someone on January 1, mate, can I tell you, this year we're going to have a pandemic like we haven't seen in 100 years. The market's going to crash 38% between March and April, or February, March, sorry. Um, I just, just letting you know. Mm. You're like, oh, that's it, I'm out. I'm selling everything, I'm going away. And, you know, selling, and, and we talked, we've talked about in the past, plenty of really super smart people in March said, I'm not, I'm not investing again until I see the COVID cases come down. Mm. Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, the, the market went up exactly at the time. When COVID cases were also going up. If you waited, either A, you're still waiting, it's now 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% later, or you waited on some other part where it was 20, 30, 40% later anyway. Mm. Um, you know, all the gains haven't come in the last three weeks. Mm. <laughs> they came right through the pandemic and, you know, trying to correlate that can be, it's, it's, it's timing the market, right? We say it all the time. Trying to time the market, in my view, is an absolute mugs game. I don't know anyone who can do it well. Um, and even those who have in the past done it reasonably well, some of them got absolutely smashed by COVID. And so, you you know, I one of the things I, I think is hardest, mate, for people when it comes to stock picking generally is, or, uh, sorry, analysing stock pickers, is trying to differentiate between luck and skill, right? Mm. Like even, even you mentioned Taleb, um, he's, a, he's a pretty wide followed, widely followed bloke. People like Michael Burry who called the, the housing crisis, right? Mm. Uh, Maybe he was right. Maybe he was smart. Maybe he was lucky. Maybe it's all of the above. Mm. And, you know, I tend to think it probably is because how many other times has he been right? And, and you've got to be able to do something repeatedly to separate luck from skill. Mm. If you've timed the market right three times in a row and you get the fourth one horribly wrong, then you're probably going to give, away, give up all those gains of the last three times because, mm. you know, the market's like that, right? It works in percentages. <laughs> if, you, if, you know, if you get something badly wrong with larger amounts of money, you know, you can you can undo most of that good work, and we've certainly seen that with some big investors who missed COVID, um, missed the COVID recovery, I should say, and got completely smashed. Not in terms of losing money, just in terms of missing the entire upside. Mate, we've we've had a long chat on this, but there's just one more thing I have to mention because <laughs> I knew you were going to say, "Let's move on." I, I I just know that there'll be some Hit people me. listening out there who'll be screaming <laughs> at their player, going, "What about gold?" Because about, gold is yeah, the archetypal. Yeah. Inflation hedge, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. It is what all the <laughs> investment books will say that, like, if you're worried about <laughs> you know right. money printing and inflation, investment yep. returns, all that stuff, you gold. Gold yep. is is a safe haven asset that will always protect you in inflation. You and I have Allegedly. talked about it a lot before, yeah. but I think it's we just have. something worth touching on. <laughs> what, Go on. I know you're not, but why wouldn't why uh-huh. wouldn't you why wouldn't you buy some gold to to either physical gold or a gold company or a gold mm-hmm. bond or a gold ETF or anything that's sort of tied to that? Is yep. there an argument to be made there? So here's my thing: you and I have talked about the Vanguard Index chart over the last few weeks, and if you look at that and look at the returns of the different asset classes, you can see exactly what the compound returns of those different asset classes have delivered. And you're not surprised, I'm not surprised that Australian and international shares end up in the top two spots every single year for as long as I can remember. Mm. And so here's the thing. It's kind of like having a balanced portfolio, balanced in air quotes, the way that super funds do it, or um, some asset managers say you should have this and that and switch between asset classes and try and effectively time the market, right? Mm. So first thing I'd say is I don't do it because if I own some cash and some property and some Australian shares and international shares, I would have a lower average return over the last 30 years than just owning shares. Mm. Now, some years, some maybe two or three years at, at a go, maybe gold outperforms the market in one of every one, three, one, one of every three or five or 10 or 20 years. I don't know the numbers, but let's assume it does. Let's assume it, gold wins every five years on average. Sometimes two years in a row, they're not for a decade. If I could, if I could own a, an asset class for a 30-year period, if I add a second, third or fourth tier asset class that doesn't perform as well, then even though I get protection from some volatility some years, my losses aren't as bad some years, my gains are a bit better some years, if the total return isn't worth it, then why would I try? And if I can't, if, it, if it's not worth it, then the question is to be, okay, well, then I need to time the market, work out when to buy gold, when to sell gold. And again, like, the, like I talk about market timing in general, if I'd gone to gold in February because I was worried about COVID, the COVID crash, if I'd gone to gold in 2010 because I was worried about this hyperinflation people were predicting after the GFC, um, you know, there, there are long periods of time where there's always a reason, someone will always advance a reason why the future might be bleak. 
Mm. And yet that 30-year chart, and frankly, mate, for decades before that, um, owning shares has been a really, really, really smart investment. So mm. I would have to be trying to time the market. I'd have to be sure about what I was getting right because if I'm wrong about gold, it's going to cost me money. So it just, it just, to my mind, having to be right about the asset class and the timing, um, it's just too hard. I don't think you can do it repeatedly. So it almost goes back to my original question of if I knew it was going to happen, if, if, I, if I had perfect knowledge, of course, I would do everything correctly. Um, I don't see the point in trying to chase asset returns on an asset allocation basis. At best, it reduces your volatility. Some people need that. That's fine for them. I don't. I don't want it. I want to maximise my long-term returns. And I don't believe owning gold is, is a path to doing that. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I'm the same. I mean, I, the thing is, it's just, it's one of these things, it's all, almost axiomatic, but there's, I don't see mm. a lot of analytical kind of proof for it. This, <laughs> this assertion that it's, it's yeah. protective. Like, yeah. so look at the last 10 years, gold's done, it's pretty much where it was 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Right. Now, it's obviously been on a journey and sort of down and then back up again in, in that mm-hmm. time. But it was just like, as I, as I said before, this, this talk and fear over inflation and all the rest of it has been going yeah. for a long time. And a lot of people have been buying. <laughs> it's actually, actually really hasn't done you any favours at all. In fact, it's yeah. below where the price was in 1980 on an inflation-adjusted mm-hmm. basis mm-hmm. Uh, as well. So it just sort of these very, very, very long periods of time. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't really have much appreciation. Um, and there's a hold, as you say, there's a holding, there's an opportunity cost in, in holding it. Mm. And, and although it does sort of have this reversion to the mean quality, some of those divergences, yeah, they can be really nice for you if, if you happen mm. to get lucky on it, but they can also, I mean, the price of <laughs> gold went from 2000 bucks an ounce in 1980 down to 400 in 2000. Mm. <laughs> That's 20 years of, of awful right? kind. So it's just sort of, <laughs> you know, and that was a much higher inflationary period as well. So yeah. it's sort of, yeah. I don't. I, yeah, I, I I I agree entirely with what you're saying. I just I it, it's I just don't understand the the the, the fundamental underpinning of what it is. Mm-hmm. Gold is a really curious thing. It's kind of a lot of the I think criticisms. Not to make it a Bitcoin discussion, but a lot of the criticisms <laughs> sort of levelled at, at, at things like crypto is kind of so laughable in some ways. Well, it's kind of a lot of gold shares. A lot of those characteristics. Mm-hmm. It's valuable just because we all say it is. Yeah, kind of thing. Exactly in, right. in terms yeah. of its industrial yep. use. Yeah, most I forget the stat, but most of the gold that we dig up, we just put, we clean up, and we put in vaults. So we don't actually, you know, a bit gets used in jewelry, a bit gets used in dentistry, mm. a tiny bit that gets used in electrical componentry and satellites and that kind yeah, of stuff. The yeah. vast bulk of it, we don't actually do anything with it. Um, so, so it just it, it's I don't know the whole thing. The whole I, I've I've never well I haven't for a long long time got anywhere near gold, and I've never regret, mm. regretted it. I think in that last point, man, I'm going to grab. We didn't need to move on. Desperately need to move on. Uh, that last point is really useful because the, the 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 biggest reason. So if you look at think about businesses versus you know, stock market versus gold, if you actually break it down, I, I mentioned businesses specifically because if you're buying shares in the productive output of human ingenuity, right, which which are the companies listed on the exchange, versus gold, why is gold worth more? Because someone says it's worth more. Mm. Now that's true for companies as well because the PE ratios can swing all over the place. Mm. We saw that during the GFC, uh, during the um, COVID recession, or both actually. Mm. So the COVID recession. So you know that, that's absolutely true, and I think that's. I'm not going to. I'm not going to step away from that. that. You know, the market is not always rational. To our to our advantage, by the way, if we if we take advantage of it. But over time, if if Australian companies and global companies keep producing more stuff, make more money, then their their intrinsic value continues to rise. And there's something to say. That's why these things are worth a something at all, and mm. b more over time. Mm. Now, maybe there's a world in which profits stop increasing, but the whole capital system breaks down at that point and we're all in uncharted territory. Mm. Maybe you want gold, then I don't know, but that's, that's a big call. If your only view on gold is, eh, people might pay me more for it at some future point because they just might want to, that's literally it. Again, shares, yes, people might want to pay me more, but also the thing they're paying me for is more valuable, you know. Objectively. By, defini- objectively, by, by, by definition. By, right? by reference to cash flows and right, profits. Right, And so there was a really big difference there. And I think, you know, I... I, I get the idea. And the other thing, by the way, is to be axiomatic, gold is to some degree a protection against inflation and market crashes because other people think it is. That's absolutely true almost to, to a small degree, right? If everyone's going to rush to gold when it happens, mm. the, the very nature of that that lemming yeah. mad rush over the cliff means people will buy more gold. Gold might go up. Mm. But then you've got to work on the other way on the way back down again. So it's, it's a difficult one. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's, let's go to, to COVID um, very, very quickly, only because I have a very specific question to ask you. I 
we're seeing across the market, almost every single day, there's a headline in one of the major papers saying company A is mandating vaccines for all staff or company B is mandating vaccines for frontline staff or government department C is mandating vaccines for all the teachers, for example. And I am curious, just if you're as an investor, like purely, I mean, feel free to comment anything about COVID, but as an investor, we may have a situation where retailer A says, yeah, get vaccinated and retailer B says, don't bother. Or airline A says, you must be vaccinated to travel and people will choose not to use that airline potentially if they're unvaccinated or simply, you know, don't like the idea of being, they will say, controlled or, or their privacy invaded to share that information. There are very, potentially very real implications on the decisions companies make and the decisions customers make as a result. I, I guess, firstly, am I making a, 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 you know, is it a storm in a teacup? Is it really no big deal at all? Or do we actually see potentially um, the, the, the profitability, the revenues, the, um, the, the futures of some companies dictated more than would maybe be immediately obvious by the stances they do or don't take on vaccinations? Whoa, what a huge question. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think it would, it's going to be a – of all the various, you know, multitude of factors that will impact a mm. company's performance and ultimately its returns to shareholders. Yes, mm. it is, is it potential in that, but probably very far down the list and not, not as influential long-term as many other factors. Yeah. Um, should companies be doing it? I don't know. It's really difficult. It's it's more of a legal argument and a right, you know right, right. A, a political argument. I I I I just don't know. And I, I'm, do you feel better having only a company that that is or isn't like? Do you, do you kind of if you think about the businesses that you're invested in, is their vaccination status or their sorry their their vaccination rules? Does it does it? Do you think about them differently? Do you hope they do? Do you hope they don't? Again, you can answer socially, but but purely as an investor. Do you have a, a thought as to how you would see this play out potentially? I think it actually, it's hard. I'm, I'm being a bit cautious because I just hate wading into this stuff because I'm just going to end up annoying <laughs> you half, do not. half of the You audience. do not. You, love it. <laughs> you, you just want an opportunity. Half well, a chance, mate, you're through the gap. Well, I... I I feel as though there is a certain corporate responsibility. <laughs> if, you've, if you're operating the kind of business where a lot of your employees are dealing with the public, um, there, there is a bit of a responsibility there. One, in terms of right. to protect your own employees, but also to protect your customers as well who may be coming into contact. So, and then, and then on the other side of things, well, then how much control does a company get to have over yeah, what, what totally. medical... You know, so it's, it's really, really, it is really, hard, really, huh? really prickly. Yeah. Um, I, and this is when you kind of have to, you, when you start digging down through or peeling the, the onion, you kind of get to the core thing as mm. what, what do you think people should have as, as a right? So this is, mm. this is where the, the, the <laughs> thing you, I, I generally like to avoid as a discussion yeah. point. But, but I, I kind of think as though I'm all for, for, for liberty and freedom and all of those kinds of stuff. But I think mm. at the end of the day, it's very hard to, uh, to remove yourself from the society in which you live. Mm. And there are mm. certain sacrifices that we must all take <laughs> for, our, all, for our collective uh -huh. good, even yep. though it means. So, for example, you know, take it to an extreme, right? Maybe I should have every right to carry a bazooka down the street. Why not? It's my right. <laughs> I bought my bazooka online. I should have a bazooka. You know, other okay. people might say, well... Bazookas don't kill people, mate. People kill you know, people. You know what I mean? Like, it's a ridiculous example, but not. But it, but it's kind of the same yeah, argument. Yeah. At what, at what yeah. point do we sort of say, actually, there are things you can't do because... If we I just... have the ability to infect you with a, with a disease that may kill you, right. you, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a firearm, but it's not that it's... far away. If, you, if you're shooting a gun randomly down a street with a chance of possibly hitting and killing someone, yeah, you'd be, you'd be you'd be stopped from doing it, but if you're carrying a, a potentially fatal disease down the street without precautions, well, yeah, so yeah, this, I, I can see the analogy for this, sure. This is the thing: does it does it scare me a little bit that government mm. and business could have <laughs> a very direct say over my medical history and, mm. and actions mm. that I might? Yes, it yeah. does. I mean, I really get yeah. that unease. It, 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 yeah. It's very Orwellian almost at a point. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But then at the same time, when you sort of re remove a conspiratorial mindset, you kind of think <laughs> actually, you know, I, I always try to yeah. reduce it down to the village analogy. Just take all of human population and reduce this. We just hundred people yeah. in a village. You know, it's probably. Not not unreasonable for the chief to say, "Hey, listen, we're gonna we're gonna come to some collective agreements here, just for a, yeah. for our for our own collective sort of good." So, uh, look, I don't. I'm bumbling, mate. I I don't know what the answer is. I do acknowledge that it's extremely complicated, and I probably 
err on the side of I think it's it's probably a good idea mm, for a lot yeah, of company, yeah. companies to do that kind of stuff. And just just operationally, right? Like, you know, if you lose some 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 companies very people dependent, you know, if half mm, your workforce yeah. is out. Look at the hospital system. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, medical staff that are, are furloughed at the moment well because they just mm. they're, they're in quarantine and the rest huge impact to your operation just just prudent management of a business would require that you sort of account for that kind of stuff mm. i don't know I'm, I'm, I'm rambling what do you reckon mate i no i so i i am assuming that over time we end up with a with a social consensus uh and that large listed companies end up with in roughly the same place each mm. so my starting assumption is while it might be rocky for the next couple of months, will end up in roughly the same place, and I don't expect my investments to be materially impacted by the yeah. decisions individual companies make. Yeah. But I can also, where it gets a bit messy, is things like retail businesses where there are very, very large numbers of casual and permanent part-time and full-time workforce. Mm. So if you think about shopping at Woolies or Coles, uh, if I'm someone who either has a real issue with being made to you know, the, the civil liberties kind of view, or I'm someone who really, really values knowing that where I go to shop, the, the staff, the people, the, uh, you know, are, are, are vaccinated and I'm safer, I can actually see that potentially being an interesting exercise in, um, in people spending money differently. Mm. And I don't know how big that is, but remember in retail land, a couple of percentage points of growth is the difference between profit growth and, and meaningful decline, right? Mm. So just to some degree, particularly in this year where retail sales are probably going to go backwards for many discretionary retailers because 2021 was such a boom financial year. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know, mate. It, it's, it, it's not keeping me up at night, but I am alert to the possibility that we might start to see some things change. And I think mm. that for me is the bit I'm just keeping half an eye on. Mm. I think it becomes standard. I think it becomes normal. Um, I'm loath to weigh into it because you did... I share your concerns on both sides of that one. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a spurious example. It might even be too light an example, but if your employer can decide what you must be inject yourself with, um, you know, what's to stop them saying that, and this is a stupid example, but go with it, um, that people are too aggressive at work and so we're all going to have to have estrogen injections to lower our testosterone levels <laughs> and make sure we're more, we're more placid at work, right? Mm. Now, you know, on a commercial health and safety base, I'm, I might brain you with a, with a you know, metal object. And just to make sure there's a little bit less aggression in the office. Everyone's been a little bit over the top recently. Let's just have a quick injection of this stuff. We'll calm us all down and we'll get on better. Uh, is it an occupational health and safety? Yeah, maybe, arguably. Mm. Now, you know, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying COVID. I think it's super serious. I've been massively in favour, to my chagrin and to uh, other people's displeasure, uh, massively in favour of lockdowns. And I've got a whole lot of heat of that on social media. I don't, I don't resile from it. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, I, I don't even know that I'm necessarily right or that we should you know, not let people do it. I really wish government would take a view rather than business. I think this is the this well. Is that's the, the point. I position of make. government, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to, you've got to, you've got to uh, set the direction, don't you? Just uh, don't make it too discretionary. You, Just uh, yeah. this, this is the same thing when it comes to climate mm-hmm. policy. And again, put the whole debate aside. I mean, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter what business screams out for again and yeah. again and again yeah. and again is certainty. Okay, we might have a preference, yeah. but what we really want is to know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then we yeah. can all move forward uh, uh, under that basis. So, but yeah, I think I think that is probably what's lacking here is is some some leadership at the top levels. Yeah, mate, I want to ask you about SunCorp's buy now pay later change. We've seen a lot of movement in the buy now pay later space after pay, of course, being acquired by Square. SunCorp have announced recently that they are basically going to make buy now pay later a quasi function of their savings accounts. They're going to let their customers have a Visa card with a thousand dollar limit. And they are going to let people spend up to that amount of money and have that applied to their linked savings account over four instalment periods. Sounds very much like afterpay, right? And I'm not sure this is not a very, very smart move from Suncorp. And not I'm I'm hmm. I'm relatively sure if I was a bank, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. But I'm curious as to your thoughts, because on one hand, afterpay is cool. And we should never have looked the cool factor. I, I, after I didn't invent buy now, pay later, buy, you know, lay-by has been around for decades. Mm. We just mentioned Flexi Group. They've been doing their thing for a period of time anyway. So, you know, that, that, what, what it, and Afterpay is arguably not even a tech company. It's a, it's a finance business. Um, and its success really isn't saying, hey, I've got this cool new idea. It's called lay-by, but you get the product first. I mean, that, mm. you know, as I said, Harvey Norman's going to be 48 months interest-free for years. Mm. But their, their success was actually making it cool, make it accessible, making customers want it and then convincing retailers that if they offered it, they'd grow their sales. 
And this was a marketing exercise. This was very simple. This was, yes, it's innovative and yes, it's great. And I don't mean to, I'm not taking anything away from Afterpay. In fact, I, I'm not saying that they're not great because it's not this. I'm saying they are great because what they did was they made, <laughs> they, they found a way to provide something old in a slightly new way, make it cool, and then drive a whole lot of demand down that channel. I think they've mm. done a fantastic job. Mm. But I've got to have an Afterpay account to do it. If I was a Suncorp customer, I could link a, a, a separate Visa card to that and have it used as an Afterpay style account. I don't need Afterpay anymore. And if I'm going to, you know, if my bank offers it, why would I open an Afterpay account in the first place? Because I can use it anywhere that Visa gets accepted, which is more places than Afterpay, online and offline. It's, 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 uh, we said before, making someone's product your feature is very, very difficult for the product maker. And I think I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on whether or not Suncorp has a, has struck the right chord or is Afterpay too far ahead or are banks simply not cool enough and, you know, are they going to mess it up because they're banks, right? Maybe Afterpay's success is because it was an innovator and new and fresh and different and unusual and, and had the ability and liberty to do whatever it wanted rather than feel like, I mean, can you imagine wading through the bureaucracy of a large organisation to try and do this? Um, I've got to say someone at Suncorp had this idea six months ago mm. and the 15,000 committees they have to go through and the lawyers got involved and the product makers got involved and, you know, I, I'm surprised it got out at all. But I, I gotta say, I've been saying for a long time, I think banks should do exactly this. I would do it with FPOS rather than Visa, but for what it's worth. But it's the same kind of idea. Is, is this the, the, the Afterpay killer finally? Well, the other thing, of course, that Afterpay did, which was clever, was that they got the retailers to pay. So it didn't yeah, cost you any right. money. Exactly. It cost the, yes, the yes. person running the shop <laughs> yeah. to pay for your credit. Yeah. That yeah. was the genius of it, I yeah. think. So I don't know the, the unit economics of what Suncorp are doing. Mm -hmm. do, do they – I assume that the retailer's not paying if they're just using the normal mm -hmm. Visa network or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So yeah. are, they just, are they just carrying the loan interest-free? Yeah. That's it. So it's basically an interest-free Visa card paid in instalments, which effectively it's afterpay with a Visa card um, linked to your Suncorp, in this case, bank account. So, they, they, you know, I guess what I, lo what I love, genuinely love, PayPal's doing something similar, but it's only online for now. What I love about Suncorp's view, I think they're doing exactly the right thing, though, as I said at AFPOS, is you don't need Afterpay anymore. We're, we're, we're going to give you Afterpay. Mm. And you don't need to open a new account with Afterpay. You don't need to work out which retailer's got it or not. Instead of having an Afterpay account, use this one because every, everyone takes Visa. And anywhere that it takes Visa, you can use this card. Mm. Uh, I, I, it, it's, you know, now, it's not as cool. <laughs> you know, no one's going to say, hey, I'm going to Suncorp Visa it rather than I'm going to Afterpay it. Yep. And you know, Afterpay itself is its own juggernaut and the sign on the window says, come here and <clears throat> get stuff for free. Mm. But I've got to say, by the time, if my bank says to me, here's a, here's, a, here's, a, here's a visa with a set limit, no fees, no interest, and I can pay in installments, which effectively PayPal does for me now online. I'm a PayPal shareholder too, by the way. Um, but I've used, I, I don't want buy, buy now PayPal. I've got no interest. When PayPal, literally when you're paying, say, hey, do you want to use doing it, paying for installments? I'm like, of course I do. Why, mm. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, mm. why wouldn't I? If, I could, if my bank sends me a letter tomorrow and says, hey, here's a new visa card. Use this and pay off for four installments rather than one. Okay, sure. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. I can afford to buy things I want. I can afford to pay it off. I pay my credit card off every month anyway. Um, so I'm in a different position. But, I mean, sure, if they want to give me free money for, <laughs> for three fortnights, sure, I'll take it. No worries, let's do it. Um, yeah. So I guess, I don't know, it feels to me like, again, the banks might still screw it up because they're banks and big companies aren't great at innovation generally. But this feels exactly like the sort of thing that if I was after, I'd be, I'd be pretty scared. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Is it a good idea from a competitive standpoint or is, this just, is, there, is there a certain um, force at play here that is going to sort of push everyone in this direction? That's what Afterpay's done. Yeah, I mean, we've, yeah. we've already had the other bit, a lot of the big guys sort of following mm -hmm. in their wake because they sort of mm -hmm. have to. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's left at the end of the day when you just look at it from a, from a broader level. As consumers, mm -hmm. we've got far more credit options and more lenient credit terms. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. It's like having lots of planes in the air. We all get to fly around really cheaply, uh, notwithstanding yeah. environmental impacts. But it's sort of, you know, as consumers, we're better off. Are, are the creditors better mm -hmm. off on net? Uh, afterwards, I mean, again, in the, uh, before Afterpay, you would you would do exactly what you're doing now, except you didn't have an mm. interest-free, uh, uh, the same kind of interest-free sort of terms in it. So some, someone's paying the piper at, at some point. So yeah. so there's there is there is that, yes. and yes. and is it is it enough of a factor? Or I'm going to switch from my Commonwealth bank account to a Suncorp account, or when I'm young and I'm looking for a bank account to open, that that's going to be. Does it does it move the needle much on the market share side of things for mm. Suncorp to do this kind mm -hmm. of stuff? Um, and overall, are the unit economics attractive enough that it, that it's a it's a really nice business line, 
or is it just something you do because you have to do to stay relevant? But overall, on a unit economics basis, you're worse off. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think it's right. No, it's definitely that. So, yeah, look, I don't think any of the banks want to do this, um, but their credit card business is at risk and their, their, their transaction business is at risk. The other thing I was going to say is the flip side is Afterpay has decided to also try and get into banking and mortgages. Mm. So I, I got a feel, and your point about fees is exactly right, right? For, for reasons that are beyond my comprehension, I don't, I don't own Afterpay or any of its competitors. I own some PayPal shares, but it's not really a competitor in any meaningful way yet. Um, for some reason, I can never understand, the retail, regulator decided to let, let Afterpay prohibit its retailers from passing on the surcharge, mm. despite the fact that it is explicitly allows them to pass on Visa, MasterCard, Nemec surcharge. <laughs> Mm. I'm kind of like, I get the whole protecting innovation or supporting innovation, but literally giving you a free run, I don't know, mate. I, there, are, there are plenty of people who are after shareholders who probably are, you know, a little biased, who otherwise would be supporters of, of free competition. And, mm. you know, if, if, they t- if they gave Zip a, a leg up and told Afterpay it couldn't compete, they'd scream blue murder who were like, yeah, no, that's great. Let's support innovation. Let's, mm. let's give Afterpay a, literally a free kick, a, a, a head start mm. uh, in the race. I don't know. Again, I, I don't really care because I'm not, I don't know either shares. Um, but yeah, it does, it does give me some pause to if you think forward a few months you think hang on Suncorp's doing this then Afterpay has to start allowing its merchants to do you use Afterpay when they charge you 6% for the privilege mm. or do you use your visa at 1.2% or FPOS for free I reckon a whole lot of people do a whole lot of different things at that point so I get why Afterpay's going headlong into other things to mm. try and shore up its business mm. um, it's not going to kill the business but I don't know I think it's a I think it's an attractive um, it, I think it's an attractive idea. It was always a fundamental um, concern I could wrestled with and it's one of the things that just didn't get me over the line with, with Afterpay, mm, mm, which mm. is I get why a retailer would be, oh, I'm happy to pay you because yeah. uh, you're bringing in customers that I wouldn't otherwise get. I, mm, so I get mm. that. It made sense yeah. at, at an earlier point in the adoption yeah. curve. But when everyone's offering this kind of stuff, when there are, there are people who only what, – what percentage yeah, of the right. market only shops through Afterpay and you have to offer yeah, it, correct, that it's going to be – and, and a, particularly as well, I know there's brand loyalty and there's fans and the rest yep, of it, but, but, but money is money. Is, you know, is money. If, 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 if you can quickly just download another app and do exactly the same thing for a fraction of yeah, the price, right. you, you're going to do right. it at some point, right? Particularly when it's just as convenient yep. and cool and trendy and tech-based and all, all the rest of it. I just, I just couldn't wrap my head around how that played out long term. It was mm. probably mm. – well, it was definitely to my – eternal regret because things that don't last can still last a long time (laughs) (laughs) before they before they before the opportunity ceases to exist but um do you know what i mean that 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 for me was all i remember when the constant it's so well known these days the buy now pay later model but when it first came out i just i really got hung up on that wait a sec wait a sec the retailer Pays. Yeah, that's right. They're, so they're already having to pay for the good. They're, they're intentionally yeah. reducing their margin, yeah. Um, and in oh, the hope that there's yeah. enough sales that go. And they, yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm an I'm an idiot. I'm an absolute idiot for not buying Afterpay shares, mate. Because I've I think I've said this before. I vividly remember reading their presentation, and they their, their pitch to retailers is simply: yes, you got to pay us a small fee, but in case study after case study after case study, we've increased sales by thirty to sixty percent in retailers that accept Afterpay. Yeah. And so to your point, the answer to your question is, of course you do, absolutely. Mm. You, you say, you know what? You know, if I, if I got to pay 6% in fee or 4% to get in fees, do you know 30 cent in business, do I do it? Yes, every mm. single day of the week. Yeah. Unless my margin is already so low that I simply can't absorb it. Mm. Do I want the extra sales? You better, you yep. better believe I do. Yep. Yep. So no, I, I'm, not, I'm not at all surprised the retailers are doing it. What I think is a great bait and switch, by the way, for Afterpay, um, and again, nothing illegal or improper, is they say, hey, we're going to boost your sales because if you take Afterpay, people will shop with you which works until everyone else takes Afterpay. Mm. And then things go back to normal. Yes. And by then everyone's paying the fee. And so it is one of those, you know, there's, there's something, it's a bit like the housing market. I won't get you to start on that. I'll mention it just in passing <laughs> just to quit your blood pressure up. But it's the idea of like, you know, once someone pays more for a house, I have to pay more if I want the same house. Yeah. And if you want the house, you've got to pay more too. And the house next door then is worth more. Mm. And all of a sudden we're all paying more for the house and there's still the same number of houses. Yep. And houses are no better, we're all just paying more for them. Mm. And we're all locked into that deal because you can't get off the train. You know, you can't stop offering Afterpay now yep. because your competitors do, so you're stuck there. And that's, that's I mean, Policy, from a, from a purely uh, financial advice, financial policy perspective, I, you know, it should be Afterpay shouldn't be given a free kick, nor should Zip or anyone else on fees. You know, mm. if you're going, if you're going, if you're going to say a retailer can charge a surcharge on a payment method, then to exclude, to exclude some makes absolutely no sense. It's not fair for the retailer, and it's not fair for the other payment providers. Um, and frankly, we didn't need Afterpay, mate. Adding more debt to consumer 
consumer wallets is uh, is not something that I, I don't think any regulator should have as their core their core task. So I don't know. I, I think I think the whole thing stinks a little. But bit. it was rebranded. Oh, that was also what was so clever oh. about it because it was not. No one talks about it as it's a credit company, right? It, it's just yeah. it's it's debt. Um, but it's not it it's not branded as such. That's the really really smart thing about it. It's like almost the seems responsible, you know. Um, mm. But but the other thing I always think too, like at, at a large enough, and again, there's there's a long way to run with these things before these factors yeah. become dominant. And I guess that's that's yes, the core yes, mistake that I've yep, made. Yep. But Same. but thinking it through to its logical conclusion, it, you, you are going to get people, retailers just putting up their prices to account for it anyway. Yep. I mean, not might not right. be a, an overt kind of thing, but if we're all mm-hmm. charged, as you say, everyone's paying this. Uh, we're gonna. It's just gonna be reflected in the price eventually. And so at the end of the day, as usual. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, the consumer's going to end up paying for that, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it might be a great benefit to sort of have for a while, but then at a point yep. it's just going to be reflected. The jeans that you <laughs> wanted to buy beforehand yeah. are now a little bit expensive because yeah. the re- everyone's buying it on Afterway mm-hmm. and the retailers have got an, a fee that they have. They're not getting any advantage for it now in terms of extra flow through uh, and they've got these extra uh, fees they've got to pay to these credit providers. So it just, I don't know, I... So so demonstrably wrong on it. It's not even worth expanding on. But it does. It, there is a there is a mature industry here at some yes. point, which yes. looks probably quite different than how it looks in the early stages. And that's the key question. Look, Afterpay shareholders are getting square shares. I think it's a pretty good deal. I'd take them if I was an Afterpay shareholder, if I still wanted to, to stay on the journey. But yeah, I do think it's going to be a, a tougher road ahead, as you say. They've had all the tailwinds. Mm. Uh, that starts to get mature very quickly. Retailers uh, start to complain. Other payment methods start to compete. Uh, it's, a, it's, a challenging, it's a challenging environment moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Mate, let's finish very quickly with just a, a quick check-in on Hanson because mm. this is one of those situations where playing takeover arbitrage can really bite you in the backside. Mm. Um, Hanson was offered a, a, a deal, or at least uh, the usual language these days is uh, unsolicited, unbinding, mm-hmm. highly conditional offer uh, by a company or a private equity model called BGH, I think from memory, yep. who came and said, oh, we'll pay you a fortune to buy the business. Hanson went, okay, sure. And they said, but we'd like to have a look first. Mm. And if someone's offering you some money, you say, sure, you come and look at my house before you want to buy it, knock yourself out. So they had a wander around and then they walked away. And that's not good or bad. Hanson was at pains to say, oh, it's not, it's not us, it's them. And maybe it is, maybe it's not, it's an open question. But as you might expect, the share price fell meaningfully on the news. Before the takeover, shares were at $5.30. They jumped to the best part of $6.20. So that's a, that's a nice 90 cent gain per share. Uh, what's that? It's like close to you know, a bit less than 20%, 18%, something like that. Mm. Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely. And you made the, the takeover bid, by the way, was going to be higher than that. So there was some free money on the table if the takeover went through. Except, of course, uh, last week, the takeover didn't go through. Mm. Uh, BGH walked away and the shares fell from before the bid, uh, for the walk away at $6.17 down to $5.55 mm. because the takeover's not going through. Now, they're still a little bit higher than before the takeover. They're lower, by the way, than they were in May. So they kind of fallen between May and about June and then, then they kind of went up and back down again. So they're kind of in that rough range. I just want to mention, we want to mention anyway, mate, because it's one of those examples of where a, you know, it's easy as, a, as an investor to look at a, a, a takeover and say, oh, look, free money. When it goes through, I'll make, you know, three, five, seven percent whatever the difference between the current share price and the takeover price is, hey, it's free money, mm. except when it's not, right? Mm. Yes. Uh, well, this is a really interesting one. So first up, I have to disclose, I do have a small holding in Hanson, have for years, Thank you for actually. Doing that. Um, it's, been, it's been a, I've got to tell you, so for those that don't know, it sort of does really boring software for utilities and telcos mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they've just family run business that's, that's just, you know, really grown earnings really strongly. I mean, shares are up tenfold nice. in the last 10 years nice. or so. Yeah. Um, it's a great little business. But yeah, they, they were just trucking along and then BGH, private equity company, comes out and says, well, we, we're going to take, uh, we, we, we want to, we um, we're going to put forward a takeover offer of this unsolicited, conditional, non-binding indicative. <laughs> now, normally with that, the market will react. Of course, someone's sniffing mm-hmm. around. Um, yep. But what was interesting in this case, I felt, was that the board unanimously recommended it. 
which was well, that was you came out of the gate with that, which was weird. It's like someone offers you something, you go, oh well, this, hey, listen, yeah, right. we'll we'll entertain the idea, yeah. we'll see what yeah. they say. But yeah. they really yeah. came, oh, we fully endorsed this. Like, whoa, it's only indicative, guys. The other thing <laughs> yeah, that was interesting right. was that the son of the founder and the managing director mm. and one of the largest shareholders, Andrew Hansen, mm. mm. entered into an, a cooperate a cooperation agreement with BGH to sort of facilitate oh, okay. this. So it just sort of seemed like, oh, this is a done. Yeah. Deal. I know it's sort of conditional, non non binding, and this is yeah. a done done kind of deal and it went right up there was there was there wasn't much of a premium between the the touted takeover price and what the market price was doing <laughs> obviously it's fallen through so shares have come uh, all the way right, back right. not all the way back because in between that period Hansen yeah. released a very strong set of results um they're on target to their target is to 500 million in revenues by FY25. That's been compared mm-hmm. to 300 million today. Um, so, so you know, the market's also factoring that in. But my, I wrote something on Strongman about it because I think for me it was a real reminder of the value of a bird in the hand worth two in the bush. Totally. What I should have done, and hindsight's always 2020. But I think this is usually <laughs> the way. I, this is the usually usually mm-hmm. the way I play it, and I didn't play it this way. Is that when that happens? Take the six dollars. I could. I had months and months and months yep. to sell this thing at six twenty. Now, if it went through, I would have been out. I think it was six forty or something like. So it's less than five percent difference. So I take mm. all of that. So I, I hang on in the hope that if it does go through, I'll get a little extra, a little extra, like literally five percent. <laughs> Probably have to wait a few months to get all my money. Mm. It's all locked up uh, in the meantime. Um, uh, or you just sell right now. Just take the money, right? Like it's just, it's so mm. much it's so much easier because if it doesn't go through, and when you've got a private equity firm offering a highly conditional bid, there's every chance that it doesn't. You know, you you're down 15 percent. There's a real asymmetry in that. So I think a lot of the time we all hold out for these little bit extra that I might get <laughs> if a takeover goes through, or maybe another takeover bid comes through, and it's you know there's this bidding war that erupts. Although there was zero indication that there was anything yeah. close to that on on the on the horizon here. Um, yeah. But yeah, a, a lesson relearned for me. Don't don't get greedy. Take the bird worth, worth it's worth two in the bush. It really is. The downside, it's just, you know, it's one of the, there's a reason that the upside is small and that's because it's probably going to go through and as you say, you get most of the most of the benefit. You can always buy back in if you want to. Um, yeah, just. I mean, it'd be different if BGH's offer was just like uh, insultingly low or something like yeah. that. Yes. Like, exactly, screw you. Exactly. Well, I don't think it's going yeah, to go yeah. through and even if it does, <laughs> I don't want, I'm happy to hold it. Like, But right, to right, me, right. actually, I, I felt that the, the offer price yeah. was actually pretty good, bit of a premium, what I thought it was really worth. Um, you know, just take it. I think we get, yeah. and then we, obviously there were people over the last few months who were buying shares on the hope of arbitraging that difference. And, that's you know, what I just, don't, that's just, what I don't get if you, if you bought the share. And look, I get, you know, it feels like free money, right? Hey, it's a free five percent. Okay, it's only five percent. It's free. Yeah, like it's going to go. Through, it's five so percent and it's like, free, and I get to I get to realize it in three months instead of a yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. So annualize. Well, yeah, annualize that, right? Twenty percent annualized return. Gee, I'll do that every day. Yeah. Except that for every one of those five percent gains you've made, you've lost about fifteen percent on this one. So yeah, you know, it's it, it's not it's not worth it generally speaking. I no. completely agree, mate. No. Hey, will you come back on Sunday? Yes, wouldn't miss it. We will have a Sunday special mailbag edition, or always special, this coming Sunday. It drops about midday Australian Eastern Standard Time, so make sure you're there for that. In the meantime, if you want a question answered, the best way to do that is to hit us up on social or via email. Of course, follow us on social anyway because it's fun and interesting and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, – we, we love chatting with you guys, love hearing your questions and comments. So here's what you do. If you want to follow Andrew on Twitter, go to sage underscore simian at sage underscore simian or – at Strawman Invest is the Strawman Twitter account. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Insta, I'll put these together because it makes it quicker. At TMF Scott P is my handle on both of those. You can get The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU on both Twitter and Insta. The Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. Please do subscribe to the Good Oil Podcast. Please do it for me. Because I don't like having their podcast cancelled. So if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> I'd really appreciate it. Oh, cool guest coming up too, Ram. Oh, yeah? I'll tell you more about that. I can't tell you too much. All I'm saying is, um, well, is it, do, I need, do I need to have a, um, a, a drink in hand? Possibly. <laughs> okay. Possibly. <laughs> Just stay tuned for that one. I think you might have given the game away, but okay. in case you didn't, possibly. <laughs> Inside uh, do, do, do subscribe or to not. the good order. So make sure you don't miss that drinking episode. Uh, you can do that. Also, The Motley Fool Australia on YouTube. All right, that's it for now, but do send us your questions. Oh, if you want to, info, I-N-F-O at fool.com.au if you want to send us a question. If you'd just rather send it on email, do that, and our member services, Fools, will look after you. Until Sunday, from Andrew and I, Fool on. Yeah. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.